1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
0: This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much.
1: Join our Patreon for extra episodes, interviews, extra content, and to help support the podcast and help us continue to do the work we do.
0: Go to patreon.com slash fangirl to learn more. It's a bad sex
1: cult if you're having sex in front of your mom and dad. We all agree with that. I'm Jen McMenemy.
0: And I'm Jenny Williamson. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is, Jen. Guess what we're talking about today.
1: <laughs> I'm so excited. Can you not hear it in my voice? Like, this episode is one that I've been waiting for, I don't know, four or five years to cover. So here's my hope. My hope is by the end of this episode, you will also be as excited by the mysteries of Scarabray as I am. That is my job is to distill all this into excitement. We have some interesting theories to posit, and when we tell you them, you'll be like, ah. We
0: have some, we have some very informed fan fiction for you today. Just you wait.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, some of the least informed fan fiction ever, but you're going to love it. So Jenny and I visited Scarbray in 2017, and to say that 2017 was a shit year is just such an understatement. For us, I don't know how it was for you. It was for both of us for so many different reasons that we're not going to get into, but you need this caveat because it was such a shitty year. Jenny decided to spend the US holiday of Thanksgiving in Scotland, way up north in the Orkney Islands, off the mainland of Scotland, wandering around Neolithic circles and forgetting about the existence of Thanksgiving. And of course, I joined her. And yes, We did eat haggis on Thanksgiving, and it was delicious.
0: Haggis-giving for the win!
1: Sometimes you have to run away, and if you're going to run away for Thanksgiving,
0: try haggis. There was this sign outside a bar, like one of those folding sort of chalk signs, and it said, Soup of the Day, Haggis.
1: (laughs) I have a photo. I can put it in the show notes. (laughs) My favorite, there was somewhere else, I think it was when we were in Corfu, where it said soup of the day, vodka.
0: (laughs) Oh, there was a sign that said, you can't make everybody happy, you're not tequila. (laughs) That's some words (laughs) of wisdom there. (laughs) So I knew
1: very little about Scarabray, except that it was an ancient site set amongst a bunch of equally ancient sites and stone circles. And my nerdy, mythology, woo-woo butt was like, please tell me more. I was really interested in the stone circles more than I was interested in Scarabray. But knowing what I know now, I'm like, how is that even possible? Like, how was I not more interested in Scarabray? Of course, Jenny knew all about the sites already. She was already well-versed in the epicness that we were about to see. But I need no encouragement when it comes to going to visit an ancient site. Just point me in the right direction Give me a good informational plaque. I mean, who doesn't love those? And I am one very happy girl.
0: Scarabray and the sites we visited in the Orkney Islands aren't just old. They are Neolithic. They are older than Stonehenge, older than the pyramids. Not older than Göbekli Tepe. Not that old. But they're ancient. And Jen had never heard of them before. I had heard of them. Discoveries in Orkney are still being made today, and so much about what we know about these sites is evolving as more is uncovered. When we visited Scarabray and the Orkneys, they were doing some work across various sites. Something new had just been found. I believe it was the Ness of Brodgar, like they just uncovered a bunch of stuff over there so the site wasn't open. We're going to talk about the Ness of Brodgar later on in the episode.
1: Yeah, it was something over there. It wasn't the whole Ness. I think that was discovered a few years earlier, but it was something in that area.
0: It was all the bones. It was the remains of the epic feast, if you recall. Yeah, it was something. Anyway, all this is to say that this incredible place, Skara Brae, was and is still spilling its secrets for modern researchers thousands of years later. So,
1: in the cold, incredibly short days of November in northern Scotland, we trekked to Scara Brae.
0: Very northern Scotland. <laughs> so far, not even on the mainland. You have
1: to go on a ferry. So, the sight of Skara Brae stole my breath. Because walking to it was like walking back in time. You walk along a long path and then there's this hill. Even in the frigid November air with the winds whipping in from the sea, there's something magical about this place. Something still and haunting and otherworldly. And I approached the site on my own. My husband and Jenny were still in the on-site museum. But I was so anxious to get to the site that I just couldn't wait. I left the warmth of the 21st century museum and struck out down a path that took me back in time, back to the Neolithic. I walked over a rise and looked down on a site that's hard to interpret at first glance. It's a circular construction of many round chambers dug into an earthen mound, winding little passageways connecting everything together, elaborate built-in furniture, and all of it built on a cliff, like literally falling off a cliff with a wild sea rolling in below and a storm sweeping in from the far horizon. And it's unimaginably old. And it was this perfect day where there there was this big storm coming in. There were these huge waves. We were so lucky that we were able to see the site for a few minutes before the rain came because we did have to take a little break during the rain. So we're going to stop here for a moment so we can go back in time not as far back as the founding of Scarabre in the Neolithic, but back a few centuries. Come with us as we watch Scarabre emerge from the earth.
0: Scarabre dates from around 3100 BC, sometime around 2500 BC, about 680 years after it was built. And these dates are very fuzzy. I've seen some dates that say it was 2200 BC, so another few centuries. Anyway, after that, it was abandoned. Nobody knows why. The earth and sand covered it over, and it was lost to the world for millennia. It disappeared from the landscape and from the popular culture. Scarabrae returned to the earth as if it had never existed. Scarabrae was buried for around 4,500 years. The fact that it was covered up so well means that it was well-preserved. In fact, it's often called the Northern Pompeii, or the Scottish Pompeii, Pompeii of Scotland, because of how well-preserved it is, and its discovery would change what we know about the Neolithic age. Scarabrae was buried for around 4,500 years. The fact that it was covered up so well means that it was well preserved, and its discovery would change what we know about the Neolithic Age. Scarabrae had been hidden under a mound. There are lots of mounds in the Orkneys, usually covering chambered cairns, and this one was named Scarabra, or I don't know how to say this, imagine me saying this in a very thick Scottish brogue. Stira Bray.
1: Every time she has to do it. Every time. I apologize, Scotland.
0: <laughs> she apologizes to the whole of Scotland. The Bray part means mound or hill. It's unknown what the Skara part meant, if it meant anything. The village Skara Bray is named after the mound it's buried under. So that name is the name of the mound that people gave it much later. Interestingly, according to an article on Orkneology, is that a website? Orkneology.com?
1: It's everything about the Orkneys. They have their own sort of like little history stuff that's all about the stuff being discovered there. They're really, really cool.
0: There's one website I found, you might have sent me the link to it, where they have like 3D walkthroughs of all the rooms at Scarabray. We should put a link to that in the show notes because that is cool. I spent a really long time doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, interestingly, according to an article on Orkneology.com, Scarabray, the hill or mound, served a purpose to the locals pre-1850 when the storm ripped it open and it poured out its secrets. Quote, the Sandwick folklorist George Marwick mentions the mound being used as a mead by local fishermen. A mead is a prominent landmark that fishermen visually lined up with another landmark to find their way to good fishing grounds. In Marwick's story, the boatmen had to keep scowhow on Row. I'm sure I mispronounced that. Meaning to line up the mound with a row headland. In another version of the story, Marwick refers to the first place as Scarobray, So it seems he is referring to scarabray. Calling the mound howe, would make perfect sense as haug, pronounced haug, haug, like smaug, is Old Norse for a mound.
1: To me, it looks more like haug, like a hog, but you know.
0: Jen is the first person to tell me that you say it smaug and not smog. <laughs> I thought it was smog.
1: Oh, I only know that from having seen the Hobbit movies. I thought it was smog too, but no, it's smaug. So I wanted to include this little story because the folklore and the history of the Orkney Islands is utterly fascinating. The Orkneys have a lot of rich folklore and cultural exchange, particularly with the Vikings. We'll we'll talk about that a little later. And while these stories have to do with things we've talked about before, the Picts, Standing Stones, Selkies, and Kelpies, and the Pictish Beast, none of them mention Scar Brae, Because this site was hidden. It was just a hill that fishermen used as a way to line up their sites for a better place to fish. And it was probably used as a local eyeline to help fishermen find their way home as well. So, for thousands of years, Scarabray stayed hidden. The locals thought it was just a mound, like other mounds in their landscape. It might have ancient things in it. Sometimes those mounds did. Sometimes they were hills. They weren't necessarily going to go and just, you know, disturb them. Look, we all know that
0: there are barrow whites in those mounds. They just knew they were there.
1: This mound was particularly useful to fishermen, and things stayed this way. Until, in the winter of 1850, there was a particularly big storm that battered the coast of Orkney. Big storms are not unusual in Orkney. When we were there, we ran into a particularly bad storm that almost had all the ferries to the mainland suspended. You can only get to the Orkney Islands by ferry. I don't believe there's a bridge you can take. You have to take a ferry. Winters in Orkney are not for the faint of heart. The weather is wild. The sea can cancel things at the drop of a hat. Winters are dark, with the sun rising after 9 a.m. and sinking by 3.30. They are cold, the wind is bracing, and the sea can be very violent. The reverse is true in the summer, with the sun rising around 4 a.m. and setting at 10.30. It's a place of extreme light and darkness.
0: The storm of 1850 was so violent that it cost 200 people their lives and did an untold amount of damage. But part of that damage revealed a secret that had been kept hidden from the world for millennia. The storm pulled off the turf that had been hiding Scarabray. Scarabray, or just the tip of Scarabray, revealed itself, just the tip.
1: (laughs) The way the site reveals itself, it does reveal itself, just the tip first.
0: Anyway, so just the tip of Scarabray revealed itself in the wake of the huge storm. Scarabray was located on the land of William Watt. William Watt was a keen, keen antiquarian. He was so keen. And he wanted to do the excavations himself, damn it. He was hands on. He wanted to get his grubby little antiquarian hands all over that thing. So, in 1850, he began his excavations.
1: He was, I believe, a lord, or a laird. Of
0: course he was. Because of how Scarabre had been buried, mostly in sand, it allowed for a lot of preservation of the site, particularly of bones. Did they find any bones at Scarabre, except for those women? Animal bones They didn't find people bones. Hmm.
1: I know, you're so desperate for it to be a death cult with severed heads, but no, they found a lot of animal bones. And a lot of the tools at this point in time would have been made from bone and stone, because it's the Stone Age. And because the Orkneys, as we'll talk about later, we're actually really poor in timber and wood. So, a lot of the reasons that Scarabre is the Scottish Pompeii is because so much of it was built with stone and the stone lasted, whereas things like wood, particularly wood in a very damp area, even buried in sand,
0: will degrade. So, anyway, what was Scarabre and what did William Watt find? William Watt realized that he had something really important on his land. He found something, let's be clear. He was an antiquarian himself, but he realized he needed help to really excavate this site. This was not a one-person job. This was at least a two-person job. So he contacted George Petrie, another local antiquarian. Together, but mostly under the leadership of Petrie, they worked on excavating the site.
1: It was a little team, right, of people who mostly knew what they were doing as far as the 1850s go. And this is what they found. So Scarabray is a collection of interconnected dwellings, kind of like townhouses or apartments. All built underneath a mound.
0: I would say they're absolutely nothing like townhouses.
1: Well, I guess more like condos. I'm thinking of my mom's condos. I mean, they're all connected. Like all the buildings are connected. They don't have passageways to walk into. But like where my mom lives, everything is on the ground floor. They're all sort of set in these rows. They're not circular, but they could be. Essentially, this was like an ancient world apartment complex.
0: That's a good way to describe it. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. I'm
1: sorry, my mom's... Where my mom is, like, particularly where she lives, is like one story like this. Everything is laid out exactly the same, which we'll talk about in a little bit. That's why I always think,
0: oh, it's like my mom's condo. When I think of a townhouse, I think of like one of those four-story, like, big brownstone houses you see in some areas of Brooklyn and Philly.
1: Oh, yeah, no, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about something different.
0: You're talking about a condo. <laughs>
1: I'm talking about a condo, I think, in the south where my mom is. They call them townhouses, but they're condos. Although condos can be two stories. It's like an apartment complex all built underneath a mound or into a mound. So all of the houses opened into each other and you kind of had to pass through each one in order to wind your way in or out of the village. Uh, And the reason for that was deliberate and very clever. And again, we're going to talk about in a little bit. Scarborough looks, in my opinion, like a multi-occupancy hobbit hole. Essentially, Jenny, it is hobbiton. Live, Albert. We found hobbiton.
0: It's like a hobbit apartment complex.
1: Yeah. So Scarborough is these small houses, need of a few rooms, built into uh, a hillside. Think of Frodo's house in Lord of the Rings. The houses are sort of carved into the hillside, or they appear to be carved into a hill, sort of sunken into the hill in a kind of circular layout. And houses is a generous description as they tended to be one room, like they would have been a studio, but we'll call them houses.
0: Each one was round. They were little round studios within a sort of complex that was also round in shape, all connected by these uh, passageways that were very sort of circular and windy. There was a lot of curved lines here, It's really like just kind of flowy.
1: Yeah, it's very flowy. It's very round. And there's a lot of reasons why this is. Some of it have to do with their religious practices, maybe. Some are very practical. We're going to get there. Let let the archaeologists bring us there through time. So it took William Watt and George Petrie 18 years. But by 1867, they had uncovered four of the houses in Scarabray. No one was sure how old these structures were just that they were old, ancient even, a part of the ancient history of Scotland. In
0: 1867, William Watt and George Petrie presented their findings at Scarabray to the Society of Antiquaries in Scotland. It was believed that the area around Scarabray was ancient. In 1769, James Robertson claimed to have found a Danish skeleton with a sword and axe in hand in this area. So the prevailing thoughts were that this area had to be filled with ancient burial mounds and remnants of long past times, potentially Viking and Pictish times. However, there were no ancient Danes or swords found at Skara There was no signs of warfare at all found at Skara According to worldhistory.org, quote, Petri extensively cataloged all the beads, stone tools, and ornaments found at the site and listed neither swords nor Danish axes. In fact, no weapons of any kind, other than Neolithic knives, had been found at the site and these, it is thought, were employed as tools in daily life rather than for any kind of warfare. Work was abandoned by Petri shortly after 1868 CE, but other interested parties continued to investigate the site. Everything that Petri and Watt found pointed to a culture that was not warlike. The people who lived at Scarabre were peaceful, mostly farmers or fishermen.
1: And essentially, after the discovery of these houses the excavations kind of petered out. I didn't find a huge list of what the original excavations dug up, at least not a list that was different to the later excavations, except for like one thing, which we're going to do a Patreon about. It's called the Brave Pudo, which is fascinating. So for now, let's just leave things here, with the site being fully catalogued. But with much of the site still undiscovered, the excitement about this find had sort of waned, and it was left exposed to the elements and to passersby. In 1913, an excavation led by W. Balfour Stewart worked on the site, and I didn't find much about this excavation as far as anything being found beyond what the Watt excavation had dug up, houses, beads, and stone tools and pottery. This excavation did not uncover any additional dwellings. In fact, it seems that this excavation was sort of mostly well-known for something that happened during the time the uh, workers occupied the site. One weekend, during the time when the Stewart excavations were going on, thieves entered the site and stole lots of artifacts. We have no idea what those artifacts were, where they disappeared to, or anything else about them. It's a mystery. But the theft was remarkable enough to be noticed by the people working on the excavations. It was reported, but we have no idea what was stolen. No one has written it down. Like, Jenny, what could it have been? Why are there no records of what was stolen? What was so important that it had to be recorded to the police as a theft, but also not catalogued? I am so fascinated by
0: this. I don't know. Maybe the workers were in on it.
1: Maybe. I know, like, when I was reading this for a long time, people did think the workers were in on it. And it was a huge controversy because they're like, no, why? If we took it, like, how stupid would that be? If it's the find of a century that we're telling everyone it is, why would we take it? Like, we would want it in a museum. We'd want our names attached to it. Like, we didn't steal it. So time has come down saying, like, they probably weren't involved in the stealing of it. But, like, I just want to know what it was. Like, why did they not say, like, oh, we found this thing? Maybe because they couldn't substantiate it because they didn't have the item. I don't know.
0: That's why I'm like, maybe they took it because they didn't document it on purpose. So it would be harder to find and trace back to them.
1: But then why would they report it as stolen? Like, why are you reporting something as stolen? There was this huge break in and things were stolen. If you're not telling people what was stolen, you might as well not report it. You might as well just be like, oh, it went missing. But this is important enough to report it.
0: I don't know. This is all a mystery to me, too. It's just
1: one of the mysteries of Scarberry, the modern mysteries. Thank you.
0: History of Everything is just the right podcast for you.
1: It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be.
0: Hello, everyone.
1: You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't
0: recognize me from anything
1: yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. Anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. So in
0: 1925, there was another epic storm at Scarabray. This storm damaged some of the excavated structures, and it was decided that a seawall needed to be built around the site to protect it from more storms. During the construction of this seawall, four more buildings were uncovered. Construction on the wall stopped, and a new set of excavations began. In 1928, a professional excavation was set up with Vere Gordon Child, a professor from Edinburgh, and J. Wilson Patterson leading the dig, and what they found was the rest of the site. From 1928 to 1930, the rest of Scarabray was freed from the earth. In total, eight dwellings made up the site of Scarabray. Each one would have been connected to the surrounding buildings, most connected on more than one side. After millennia in the ground, they were finally returned to the sea-soaked Scottish air, at the time, Child suspected that the site was Neolithic, but what was found at the site couldn't be reliably dated. This was long before carbon dating. So, while Child suspected the site was very old, there was no way to prove this. What they thought at the time was that this site had all the makings of a Pictish village. So let's just stop for a minute and talk about what they found and why they believed that Scarabray and Neolithic 4,500-year-old village was actually a much more modern village from around the 500s B.C.
1: At the site, they found grooved stoneware, which is a kind of pottery that has a grooved pattern or grooves carved into it, like a repeating pattern of squiggly lines or waves. And the date of this pottery hadn't been identified. And so archaeologists assumed that it was much younger, more in line with the time of the picks. They found carved stone balls, similar to ones found at sites where picks had lived. <laughs> carved stone balls. Oh, now I can't. Now I'm done. <laughs> carved stone balls.
0: You know, we've done a lot about the picks, but I have never looked under the chassis, and maybe I should have.
1: <laughs> Pictish balls.
0: <laughs> they're balls carved of stone. I didn't know this, but the gentleman scholars knew. <laughs> you
1: absolutely should have. You would have realized that they're balls. Or carved stone. <laughs> let's try it again. So let's try the sentence again. Carved,
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: carved stone balls similar to ones found at sites where Picts had lived were also found at this site. Since the carved balls looked Pictish, this meant. This meant that the balls at Scarabray also likely came from under the Picts' chassis, right? Right?
0: <laughs> <laughs> the balls at Scarabray looked Pictish, but were they Pictish? <laughs> the only reason we can't answer that question is because they didn't carbon date the stone balls.
1: They couldn't, because there was no carbon dating.
0: Those balls were too hard and dense to carbonate, to carbon date. <laughs> I feel like when you said carbonate you were like
1: to tinder date. I mean carbon date. <laughs> <laughs> So, so what the archaeologists were doing here was similar to what we've actually done on our podcast, using actual uh, tried and true research methods to figure something out. So what they were doing was trying to triangulate what they were finding and compare it to what they knew.
0: If they knew. If they knew the picks were in this area and they already knew what the picks balls looked like.
1: Yeah. And what they found was similar to those Pictish stone balls then it's probable to extrapolate that this was a Pictish settlement. The Picts were around the 500s, therefore this is probably from the 500s. Except something in the back of Child's mind said that this wasn't a Pictish settlement. But he had no proof. So the researchers went on with the assumption that this was indeed a Pictish settlement. But here's the thing, the Picts didn't tend to live in these type of villages. Their houses weren't like the ones at Scarabray. And they definitely weren't interconnected. They probably would have been more than one room, and they wouldn't have had the odd, almost prefabricated furniture like the famous Scarabre dressers, which we'll talk about later. Plus, the pics did not have indoor toilets. And yes, you heard that right indoor toilets.
0: Between 1972 and 1973, Scarabre was excavated again. This time, radiocarbon dating was done, and finally it was confirmed that Scarabray was no Pictish village. It was not! In fact, it was thousands of years older than previously thought. Dating said that Scarabray was from the 3200s BC. Good lord. So, Scarabray is older than Stonehenge. It's older than the Sphinx. But it is not. It is not. It is not. Older than Göbekli Tepe. I'm gonna die on that hill. That pot-bellied hill. That's where I'm gonna go to die.
1: Definitely not older than Gobleke Tepe, but we don't have to compare it to Göbekli Tepe. It can be its own thing, although we will compare it a few more times. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Scarabre, this tiny little Neolithic village in the remote Orkney Islands, was so old and so well-preserved that it helped identify what life would have looked like for Neolithic people in the UK and maybe parts of Northern Europe altogether, because Scarabre had spent 4,500 years or, you know, 45 centuries. That's how centuries work. Buried in a sand dune, preserved because of these unique conditions, and now it was finally ready to tell its secrets. Some of them, but not all of them.
1: Not all of them. A lady's gotta keep a few secrets back. (laughs) I don't know what that was, but there you go.
0: It was a very pretty song.
1: So, after all the teasing we've done, we're finally going to talk about what Scarberry was made of, what the houses looked like, and how the village functioned. And Jenny... When I did this research, I was surprised by almost everything I uncovered. So, Scarabray was built in around 3,200 BC, and it was actively lived in for 600 years. I mean, it was actively lived in longer than the nation of America. Almost everything in Scarabray is made from stone. The only exceptions being the ceilings of the homes and the animal skins that would have served as blankets. The furniture, the floors, the walls, the passageway, everything was made of stone. And it had a lot of built-in furniture that was standardized across all the houses.
0: And that's why it still stands today. The era of 3200 to 2200 BC is known as the Neolithic or New Stone Age. During this time, the area and climate of Scarabre would have looked and felt very different to how it is today. So let's talk about the landscape because even that was really different. The landscape of Scarabray is jaw-dropping and precarious. When you approach Scarabray today, walking down a long paved path from the visitor center, you see hills gently rising, and then you see the site. It's set against a cliff, and it looks like a tiny hobbit village sunken into this hill, brown and green and stone. It's right by the sea, and storms can roll in quickly and bring very severe weather. And one question you have to immediately ask yourself is, why would anyone put this village on the edge of a cliff? Why? A cliff with no access to fresh water. Why would you build your village on the edge of the world with nothing but the turbulent North Atlantic for company? The Orkney Islands are stunning and remote, filled with lochs, which, as Jen says, is the Scottish word for lakes. Rocky and at times kind of boggy and swampy, depending on the rainy seasons. When we visited in November, entire fields were swampy and muddy. It's not a place with a lot of trees, just grass, fields, hills, and when you approach the beaches, sand and rocks. And the lack of trees here is important, because the absence of trees meant that Scarabray was built out of stones, and these stone dwellings, hallways, and passageways lasted the ages. A seawall has been set up around it to protect the village from falling into the raging North Atlantic.
1: That's what Scarabray looks like today. But what did the landscape look like four thousand five hundred years ago? The Orkney Islands were still remote, they're still you can only get there by boat, but they were warmer, not Mediterranean summers warm. But warmer than they are today by a few degrees Celsius. For the record, the average temperature in the winter in the Orkney Islands is around 45 degrees Fahrenheit. And in the summer, it's high as in the low 60s. So this time of year, this is November that we're talking about, the days are very short and the nights are very long. And this wouldn't have changed back then. In the summer, there's almost constant daylight for about 18 hours a day at the summer's peak. In the winter, the sun rises as late as 9 a.m. and sets at 3 p.m.
0: So it's like, you know, very, very long days in the summer, very dark, dark days, short days, and long, dark nights in the winter. That That is one experience that the people of Scarabray would have had the same as we have today.
1: Exactly. But around the time Scarabray was occupied, there was a huge shift in the hunter-gatherer lifestyle. Around that time, nomadic peoples had started to settle down because they were able to raise their own livestock and farm their own fields. As well as, in the case of people who lived near the sea and rivers, lakes and ponds, catch their own fish.
0: The landscape around Scarabray would have looked very different from what it looks like today. Today, it's on a cliff right by the sea. Back then, the sea was not as close as it is now. How far away was the sea exactly? I couldn't really find that.
1: I couldn't really find it, but it definitely wasn't as close as it is now. We know that erosion, essentially, you know, the reason they put the seawall up, has meant that a significant portion of, of that cliff has fallen away, but I don't know how much. It would have overlooked the sea, but it wouldn't be, when you go and see Scarborough, you'll know what we mean. It wouldn't be literally hanging off a cliff.
0: Like, you could walk to the sea, you could see the sea, but it wasn't right by the sea. Exactly. Anyway, so back then the sea was not as close as it is now, and the village was actually next to a freshwater lock that over the millennia has dried up. So the village had a fresh supply of water for its inhabitants and the animals that they raised, cattle, pigs, and sheep. There were rolling fields which provided food for the animals, although we know from evidence left behind at Scarabray that the people still hunted for red deer and wild boar for both the practical purpose of food and also for their skins, which could be made into cloths, rugs, blankets, and other stuff. The people of Scarabray cultivated their own crops like black oats and barley, so the fields around Scarabray would have been filled with animals grazing, crops growing, and a large freshwater lake. And there were seasonal berries and mushrooms and other vegetation that was foraged, so the landscape would have been very fertile and provided a lot of food. As we've said, the people of Brae were also fishermen. They used traps rather than hooks to catch fish and shellfish. Their diets consisted of seals and the occasional beached whale, as well as the birds and the eggs of birds that live by the sea, and, of course, freshwater fish. The people of Scarabre were incredibly adept at living in their environment.
1: And as we said before, Scarabre wasn't actually built on the edge of a cliff. I mean, that's the dramatic view we have now. It wasn't a village that was falling into the sea. It was built inland, further away from the sea, but with a good view of the sea below. The sea was accessible and visible. They would have been able to see storms coming from a long way off, just as I did when I walked to Scarabray myself in the 21st century. So being able to see what the weather looked like, gauge when people were coming back from fishing, or even if people were having trouble at sea, would have been key. But having a healthy distance from the sea was important, too. It would keep their village safe from large storms, waves, and winds. Because even back then, people knew that setting their village too close to the edge of a cliff or too close to the sea was not a good idea. The village of Scarborough itself was composed of, his, and these numbers vary. I've seen as many as 10 or 18 dwellings, but the number most people tend to settle on is 8. Although it seems in Scarborough that only seven to eight of these dwellings, these homes, were actually ever in use. At its most prosperous, I've seen it had between 100 and 150 people who lived in the village. And the village itself looks small. As I said earlier, Scarbright looks exactly like my idea of Hobbiton. And again, we'll put up pictures of this uh, from our trip. It seems as if Scarborough was carved into the hillside, sort of sunken into the ground. But This isn't actually the case.
0: So Scarabray was actually carved into a more ancient midden. So this is a midden from an older settlement. A midden is sort of an ancient trash heap, like a landfill. Although it's not like our modern trash heaps. This midden would have been made of things like shells, bones, seaweed, turf, and other debris. And there isn't like an ancient village that went with this midden like none has been discovered. It's just like a midden by itself, which is also kind of weird. Right, Jen? Like I find that weird and mysterious. Yeah, it,
1: like everything about Scarabray is weird and mysterious. It's, it's obvious that this midden that is older than the village of Scarabray means that there were people there. Most likely, they were nomadic people. This, and again, I've got my hat on. I'm just supposing here, and giving you supposition. Most likely, they would have been a nomadic people who would have come in and out of that area, potentially after food foraging something else. And you know, they may have come there for a long time. That's why we have like a buildup of a midden of a trash heap, and then went on their way. But they didn't stay there permanently enough to have any other settlement.
0: So it's like a gathering place, which makes me wonder, why isn't there a gobleke Tepe right there? I don't know. Well, there
1: is and there isn't, because Scarabray is part of Neolithic Orkney. There are other worship sites, just not at Scarabray.
0: Look, this is all very mysterious, you guys. And the mystery does not start and end at Scarabray, I think, is one of the lessons here.
1: Because this season is just on ancient mysteries in single places a lot of the time, we're not going to be able to go deeper into it, but I I would like to, at some point in time, love to come back to Neolithic Orkney and tell you about some of these other sites that I wasn't able to tell you about in this episode. So watch this space. I will find a way to weave them into another season.
0: Yeah. So anyway, this midden would have been made of things like shells, bones, seaweed, turf, and other debris. And this midden was crucial to the longevity and success of Skara Bray because the midden served as insulation against the harsh sea winds, storms, rains, and other elements. The midden kept the people warm and dry. And it also allowed the village to kind of disappear into the landscape so that only the tiny roofs would have been visible at a distance. It was like camouflage. To outsiders, to maybe predatory animals, although I don't know, animals can smell things. But then again, a midden smells. So that's like, it's like smell camouflage. That's really smart.
1: The other thing we didn't talk about is like on the Orkney Islands now, you don't have predatory animals like wolves or bears or things like this. But potentially you might have had those animals back in in Neolithic Scotland.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess a midden would attract scavenging animals, but that, you know, not necessarily the same as predatory animals, although there is some overlap. Anyway, so basically Scarabre was built into an old trash heap. But what it looked like inside was revolutionary for its time. Skara as we've said before, was made up of small, single-room stone dwellings. And what's cool about them is that they had built-in furniture. And it was all the same exact standardized furniture placed in the same place in each dwelling.
1: Do you know what it was like, Jenny? It was like when you go to the IKEA showroom and they show off all their furniture that's all the same. You have to walk through it all.
0: You walk down a little path. Yeah, I love that. Scar Scarabre, Bray. Scarab ancient Ikea. Whoa, well, maybe it was like a showroom.
1: Maybe it was ancient Ikea and everyone would come from that area to like buy the furniture and then take it away.
0: Ancient world Ikea. We're going to get to some more theories that we have about what it was. Let's just get through the whole thing. It's not my favorite theory either, but I do like it. Anyway, so Scarabre Bray was made up of small single room stone dwellings. All of these dwellings had a central fireplace or like a, you know, like a central hearth, basically. like a It was like a stone, a square stone hearth where you lit a fire in the floor. Low roofs, presumably to keep the heat in in the winter and to keep the rooms cool in the summer. There were two beds. There was a dresser, a central dresser. And all these rooms were connected to each other by at least two entry points.
1: Yeah, and the beds were on either side of the door as you walked in.
0: Oh, And this is true for all the buildings except one, and we'll get back to that in a little bit. So these small dwellings were interconnected, and you would have had to walk through one to get to another in the complex. The dwellings were connected by a series of low passageways with stone roofs. If you visit the site, the dwellings were kind of circular, and these passages between them were winding, and it all looks kind of flowing, and they were built that way deliberately.
1: The winter winds in Orkney can be cruel, and the damp can chill you to your bones, and the winds, in particularly in Scotland, will cut right through you and the Neolithic people of Brae knew this. So what they did was essentially design their village to help cut down on the biting winds. The winding passageways and openings amongst the houses meant that the wind couldn't cut right through the buildings and make them colder or expose them to more wind or damage. It's kind of genius. This windy building technique makes the houses warmer, Probably easier to heat in the winter and less susceptible to wind. Essentially what they did was when you have straight lines going down your buildings, your, co- your complex, your street, you can make a wind tunnel. And I used to work on a street that essentially was a wind tunnel and you'd go down it and the wind would just blow your dress up or your face. By making their village and the entrances windy and circular, they essentially didn't allow it to become a wind tunnel.
0: Wow, that's cool.
1: Isn't that really cool? Also, it would protect it from, like, eroding and wearing away. Like, the bit of the building that isn't built into the hill would have had wind coming at it from the front, but by curving it like that, it would help it not get so beaten up by the wind. The houses would have been very dark and very smoky, as they had no windows. Probably there was some sort of central hole or skylight-esque feature in the ceiling, to let out smoke and let in fresh air. We don't exactly know how that worked or what it would have looked like or if there was one there. We know that the ceilings were made of some sort of organic material like seaweed, maybe timber, animal skins, turf, or that straw. And we know that because they didn't last. The passageways, on the other hand, had stone slabs for ceilings and were covered in soil and debris for insulation. But these passages were also three feet high Meaning people had to stoop to walk through them. Because, shocker, people were not only three feet tall.
0: People in the ancient world were a lot shorter than today, so maybe.
1: Maybe, but we don't think they were three feet tall. We think they did this on purpose as a way of sort of crowd control people through the areas and also wind control.
0: What do you mean crowd control?
1: Well, if you have to stoop to go through, like, you can't all, like, run through quickly at once, right?
0: People can run in a crowd, Jan.
1: You can run in a crouch, but we're these are very tiny, you know?
0: Such a weird conversation we're having. <laughs> I personally can run swiftly and silently in a crouch.
1: She says that, but she can't.
0: You lie. Lies! If everybody knows what I can do, then it won't be a surprise.
1: So stop bragging about it on the podcast. You never hear me bragging about that stuff.
0: Right. Anyway, this is so weird. Let's just get back to Scarabray. So we're just going to talk about how deeply weird Scarabray is. So... We know that they had doors at the entrance and exit to each dwelling because we found these bar holes, holes that would fit a door in the opening to each passageway, like basically where like a hinge would fit, right? These holes are at the entrance and exits of the dwellings and lead into the passages. So we know that these dwellings all connected to each other through these passageways and had some kind of door that was fashioned in place. We also know that the doors had locks. All of the doors could and would have been secured by either a whalebone or timber bar. So just to help you wrap your head around this, people had to pass through each dwelling to reach other dwellings, kind of like a railroad apartment, except there were these passageways between the dwellings that were three feet tall where you had to run in a crouch. And we know that each dwelling had two doors, one for each passageway. So theoretically, the inhabitants could have some privacy. The doors even had locks. Although if the person in dwelling one locked their door and you lived in dwelling three, you'd be locked out of your house. So this was extremely inconvenient. Yeah.
1: <laughs> this is a huge flaw in the system, right? Like they don't all just en- open into a central passage you can walk through, which would have made sense. You have to walk through everyone's house. And the people also had the ability to just lock you out and be like, not coming in.
0: Well, let's say that you went through dwelling one and they locked their door and then you tried to go through dwelling two and they locked their door. You're just stuck in the passageway.
1: Or you would wake up literally everyone in the village trying to get through their house to get to yours. <laughs> Can you imagine living in, like, house six and being like, I was out having an orgy in the woods and I didn't want to tell anyone. Now I need to get home and everyone's locked their doors against me.
0: Shit. Everyone knows your business in Scarabray.
1: That's communal living for you. So, let's actually talk about what life was like at Scarabray. So as we mentioned before, there were roughly seven to ten dwellings on the Bray site, or maybe eighteen. They're fuzzy. I only saw that in one place, and I'm like, nobody else has said that, so who knows?
0: We think eight. I think eight is the most commonly cited number.
1: Yeah, and I think that's the most agreed upon number. But who knows? All of these dwellings have the same central layout. They are all one room with a large central fireplace, a shelved dresser that was opposite the doorframe, and two built-in stone bed frames. The central fireplace would have been used for cooking, keeping warm, and lighting the homes. So this is what Orkney Jar, uh, which is a really, actually a really good comprehensive website that's dedicated to the history of the Orkneys, to mythology and folklore, and it, it is really quite scholarly. This is what the website tells us, quote, With a total floor area of 36 square meters, a Scarabray house was actually quite spacious. Life inside would have been reasonably warm and comfortable, certainly by Neolithic standards, with beds having straw or heather mattresses and blankets of sheep or deerskin. So the houses in Scarabray would have been pretty roomy for their time period, they would have been warm and comfy, and their beds would have been filled with materials that made them, you know, soft and nice and comfy.
0: The beds were sort of box beds. So it's basically like what remains today is a, a rectangle made of upright, thin slabs of stone forming this rectangular enclosure, like maybe a couple of feet high, I think. The beds would be set to the right and left of the entrance. In every single dwelling, the beds on the right were larger leading some to suggest that they were the man's bed. And to the left, the beds were smaller. Beads have been found in some of the beds to the left, leading to the idea that these beds may have been occupied by the ladies. So men and women slept separately is the theory. So hang on, let me just wrap my head around this a little bit. So you said that at its height, maybe 150 people lived in Scarabray, right?
1: More like 100, but potentially 150, I saw somewhere. But let's go for 100. It's a nice round number. Let's do the math on 100 people in eight houses.
0: Okay, so there are two beds in each of the eight houses, which means 16 beds total. Is that correct? Or are we counting, like, the marketplace workshop area?
1: We're counting it for now, yeah. Because we haven't told them that yet.
0: We're going to whip out a calculator. 100 people, 16 beds.
1: You would be having something like... 6.25 6.25 people to a bed.
0: And they're not big beds. They're not.
1: <laughs> the 0.25 is my favorite.
0: <laughs> what are we, What is happening here? Like, is this a sex cult?
1: Well, you know, I had some thoughts about this because it's very weird, right? Okay, so first of what I suspect happened is probably several people slept in a bed for practical purposes. What I suspect would have happened is these were single family homes. And again, I'm not sure exactly. This is just wild speculation I'm making. If they weren't all in a sex cult, sleeping six people to a single bed, which they are essentially single beds.
0: Really single beds. You know that
1: twin extra long bed you had in college and you're like, this is a tiny bed. This is like a twin extra small bed. (laughs) And one is even smaller than the other one. And there's six of you in it. (laughs) I mean, so what I suspect would have happened potentially is you would have had some people sleeping in the beds. You probably would have had children who were babies sleeping in maybe a cot near the bed or maybe in their parents' arms. You might have had some people who were sleeping on the floor on animal skins. Those floors were stone, but they had animal skins over them. I'm assuming. I mean, I don't know the answer to this. It could just be that they were all just sleeping 6.25 people deep.
0: So it's the freaking Nexium Sucks cult. Or it's an Ikea showroom.
1: Yes, or these are Ikea showrooms and people just like pass their room like, I want that dresser and I want that stone bed and I really want that hearth, but I don't think our dwelling is big enough. Can you do it at two thirds the size? Okay, I'll I'll go to the warehouse and see what they've got in size
0: Swankerman 22A. (laughs) <laughs> meant <Schlongerman> 22. <laughs> Maybe some people were sleeping in the hallways, like especially if you weren't getting along with the other people in the sex cult right then.
1: Well, you know, as much as I love my husband, we both have fights. Can you imagine me just locking him out in the hallway and being like, when you're reasonable, I'll let you in.
0: <laughs> I bet that would be very tempting.
1: Yeah, it is one of those things where I I don't know. I also don't know how, like, again, we think there was up to 100 people living there at the height of Scarabray. We also don't know how big families were, and we don't know what it would have looked like when the people of Scarbray married. Like, we know that Neolithic Orkney was large and had other communities. Did they move away? Like, we don't know how many people would ever be there at any real point in time
0: hundred to 150 at the height, Jen. So it's 6.25 to maybe eight people per bed.
1: And they're single beds. Like Mama and Papa can't push them together. Like
0: <laughs> Mama and Papa are very separate. I mean, that is weirdly—I don't know what's the word—circumspect uh, for a sex cult. <laughs> but it actually is kind of sex culty because it's like that combination of like repressiveness and weirdly just like absolutely no privacy.
1: Yeah, th- there would have been no privacy. Everyone sleeping in a house would have been breathing everyone's stank. They would have been like on top of each other because even though these were relatively roomy, if they weren't in those box beds, they would have been potentially sleeping on the floor on some kind of mats or animal skins near the box beds, like you were either having an orgy all the time or you were never having sex
0: 50 50 whether or not it was a sex cult kind of reminds me
1: of like when you go home for christmas and You have like a full house. You've got a big family. I come from a big family. And like everyone is sleeping all over the house. There's like somebody in the guest room, somebody in the other guest room, three people on like the big sectional sofa. And it's like there is no privacy. Everyone is everywhere in everyone's business. That's what it would have looked like inside those houses. Like Mama and Papa would have got the bed. Maybe the youngest kids who needed to be with them would be maybe Papa didn't share at all. Maybe he had several wives. I don't know. Maybe the mama had several husbands. We don't know.
0: There's all these unanswered questions. (laughs) Oh, so, okay. So there's, as if it couldn't get weirder, it could. It can get weirder. So when you enter each dwelling, the dresser would be the first thing that you see. So there are these stone, I don't know if you'd call it a dresser or like a a shelving unit, like a two-level stone shelving unit built into the wall. All the inhabitants' prized possessions would be on display, lit by the flickering firelight. To the right of the dresser was a seat. Generally, was this like a stone seat? Like, what was the seat?
1: Yeah, it was a stone seat.
0: Generally, this is thought of as a seat of honor that maybe the head of the house would have sat in. So this would allow whoever was passing through the house to pay tribute to the head of the household before they went on their way. So this is... The first thing that you see entering your neighbor's house to get to your house is the dresser full of their stuff with the head of the house sitting there staring at you.
1: Just like giving you the eye like, what are you doing?
0: This is a sex cult, Jen.
1: Right? You must pay the toll.
0: Why is Scarabray so dirty? (laughs) Why didn't they tell me this at the museum when I visited? (laughs) Because they are not
1: filthy weirdos like us who have a podcast they would probably be shocked and appalled <laughs> but seriously if you look at this and don't kind of think like what was going on something weird like if this is actually genuinely how people had to get through these houses and this is what the archaeology and this is what the science and the history is telling us something weird was going on in there
0: scar rape inhabitants were weird everyone knew it
1: they were like the rest of neolithic Orkney is still living in like little villages with like little farmsteads that aren't interconnected but are close and can help each other and they're like people of Scarborough with their circular homes and that weird ancient circle and uh everybody has to walk through everybody else's place they all live communally Mm -hmm. i'm helena bonham carter and for bbc radio 4 this is history's secret heroes So let's get back to these very uniform Ikea homes. Each dwelling had a shelf dresser that was used to store things. Like it wasn't a closed, like a dresser that closed, open and closed. It was shelves, like bookshelves. And this was used to store things like their potentially treasures. There are many busts of Julius Caesar's, statues of Dionysus and Mayonnaise. They're pottery.
0: This is all much later and from a different time and place.
1: Yeah, I know. But Julius Caesar would say, do you have a bust of me in there? You should. Uh, so it would have treasures and pottery and beads and religious icons although we don't exactly know what those would have looked like we think that they had would have had like an animistic like an animal based religion but we don't know nothing has been found that conclusively says that they potentially might have stored other things like like food and other goods there we don't know because whatever was there besides things like pottery and beads if it was organic wouldn't have lasted the millennia these dressers, as I have I've have alluded to many times, were amazing. Essentially, they look like something that you could go today and buy at a Ikea or a Habitat or any other modern furniture chain. Um, we will put a link to them in the show notes. They are They're really cool, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: And they're all made of stone. They would have been so heavy. Like, I am not surprised this village sunk into the ground. <laughs> Everything is stone.
0: If it wasn't built into the ground, it would have sunk into the ground.
1: Yeah. So there was also a large square central hearth that was crucial to the survival and maybe the religious worship at Bray. We don't know for sure, but the circular nature of the village, the fact that it is literally built in a circle for both the practical purpose of keeping out the wind and maybe a religious purpose to align with the design, but not the function, of the other standing stones and Neolithic monuments, tell us that fire and warmth is at the heart of this community. Orkney Jar posits quote, The crucial importance of fire for the maintenance of life could have led to the hearth's position and the furniture around it acquiring some symbolic significance. This may account for the hearth like structure found at the center of the standing stones of Stennis. In a society where there was little or no boundary between religion and everyday life, the fire in every hearth was, quite literally, the life of the settlement. Its survival depended on it. Turning away from whatever symbolic significance the hearth had, its central position can also be viewed in a purely functional light.
0: In short, we don't know exactly if the square hearths in these circular homes had a specific religious purpose, but potentially they had a symbolic one. They definitely had a functional one, which was cooking in light and warmth.
1: So one of the things about that stone seat, Jenny, is it was right next to the hearth. If you were walking through a house, you would have these two beds on your right and your left, and then you would look across, and there'd be this hearth, and there'd be this dude, most likely a dude, sitting, eerily lit, (laughs) next to the fireplace, just glaring at you, potentially furiously masturbating. But we won't keep that bit in. (laughs)
0: I'm putting that in. <laughs> you
1: are not putting that in.
0: The man in the seat is always furiously masturbating, <laughs> no, always. No, no, no.
1: <laughs> Jenny, at this rate, the only job I'm gonna be able to get is like literally on OnlyFans, because you're ruining all my cred.
0: <laughs> same, same. I'm ruining my own cred. Sex cult. <laughs> it is a sex cult.
1: Yeah, it feels very sex culty to me.
0: Jen and I are both going, like something something is off here.
1: I do think one of the things to think about with Neolithic peoples is like And I'm just saying this for people who are like, guys, come on, you're really hammering the sex cult. Yeah, we are. And we're going to continue to. One of the things potentially to think about why the person was sitting at that seat by the fire and was so prominent was potentially they might have been someone who was doing the cooking. They might have been someone who was tasked with keeping the fire going while other people were asleep or keeping some kind of watch.
0: So another unique thing about Scarabray, this is maybe one of my favorite facts, is the indoor toilets, you guys. Scarra had indoor, perhaps flushing toilets in the 3000s BC. There was a complex drainage system, which allowed people to use a toilet that was flushable and allowed for the waste to be carried down into the sea, which is kind of amazing and also super important. I cannot stress enough how cold and dark it can get in the Orkneys. You don't want to go out there to poo, especially if your neighbors are going to lock you out there or lock you in the hallway. So can we talk about how the flushing worked? I love that
1: you think I have answers to this. I think... How they would have flushed, and I I read this in a few different places, is like they probably didn't flush every time.
0: Did they even sit down or was this a stand-up toilet?
1: I'm assuming it was a sit-down toilet. I haven't seen any real details on it, but that's what they assume.
0: Is it like a hole in the ground, though? Like, it is an alcove in the wall.
1: Well, like, we don't know, Jenny. Like, we don't know the answer. We know they had a complex series of pipes that would have taken things out of the site. Drainage is what they called it. Which makes sense because probably things would have, would have been easy to go out of the site based on how it's built and also seep into the ground potentially. What I read that I think probably would have happened is they might have used just water from a bucket to, when, they were, when it was full up of poo probably to flush it out. Probably didn't do it every time. I mean, I'm kind of picturing like a like a stone seat with like, I don't know, some kind of drainage system that the poop would go in and you just roll it down with some water. I don't know that that's right. I didn't find anywhere that gave me real details on the toilets. So this is what I'm guessing. And there was a complex drainage system, which meant that the, the doo-doo had to go away from where they were. <laughs> like, you couldn't just stay at the bottom of their house.
0: So we mentioned that the hearth was central to each dwelling and essential to cooking and light and heat. But what did they burn? As we said before, the organes are very short on wood. There are trees on the island's but not enough or of a sustainable enough nature for them to be used as firewood.
1: It's not place where you, you're going to have lots of trees that are going to grow quickly and you can use them over and over and over again as firewood. Also very damp. So an alternate source of fire had to be found. And I read somewhere in some of the research, and I can't remember what it was now, that there was a crazy theory that the, like, Neolithic villagers of the Orkneys waited for driftwood... <laughs> to come in from North Atlantic from, like, presumably big storms and stuff and use that as their fire source. And while I'm sure they probably would have used driftwood for a variety of things, I don't think if they found it, that would have been their main fuel for fires because it's inconsistent. The main source of fuel would probably have been seaweed or maybe some kind of turf or some kind of whale or seal fat. So, yeah, it wouldn't have been wood-based. So we know that the people of Scarbray had hematite, a kind of rock crystal that can be used to produce sparks when struck against other rocks. Historically, it's been used as a fire starting aid since the Stone Age. It can also be used to polish leather. Hematite is only found in this area of the world on the Isle of Hoy, which is another island in the Orkney Archipelago and not necessarily that near to Scarbray. So what this tells us is that trade between the people of Scarabray and the people of Hoy must have happened a lot, meaning during this time, people were moving around a lot. Like they were island hopping, potentially to get away from the people of Scarabray and their sex cult.
0: Potentially to get away from the sex cult you were raised in. That's one good reason (laughs) to go to
1: Hoy. (laughs) Yeah. So we've told you what life would have looked like in the majority of the houses at Scarabray. But there's one structure that isn't a house, we don't think. Actually, we don't know what it is. We wanted to tell you about the mysterious House 7.
0: House 7 is real weird, because it's like, maybe it's a house, maybe it's not a house. It has the same furniture as the other houses. So it's believed that House 7 is the oldest dwelling in the community, and it's also the best preserved. It's detached from the rest of the dwellings, and you can only enter it via a side passage. Speaking of side passages, this isn't a passage, but... I read somewhere, Jen, isn't there in one of the dwellings, like, a secret passage behind one of the dressers or a secret room?
1: I can't remember where I read that, but yes, there's, like, a secret passage or, like, a little room that was sort of hidden behind one of these dressers that they think someone was, like, using to hide, like, treasure or whatever was valuable to them or I don't know. Again, sex cult.
0: It just gets curiouser and curiouser here at Scarabray. That's not in House 7, I don't think, right?
1: No, I don't think it's in House 7.
0: So it's believed that House 7 is the oldest dwelling in the community, and it's also the best preserved. It's detached from the rest of the dwellings, and you can only enter it via, like, a single passage. That passage only goes to that house, meaning you, you don't walk through this house to get to the other houses. It's like a separate house, but you can still go there via this passage. So when you're visiting House 7, you're visiting only House 7. It's both a part of the village and also not. There's some question about whether House 7 is in fact as old as the midden that Scarabre was built in. I don't know that the midden has ever been dated. If it was part of that settlement and then incorporated into Scarabray, maybe if there was ever a settlement that created that midden, because we haven't found signs of one. It's clearly the oldest structure in Scarabray. Like the other homes, it has built-in beds, a dresser, a central hearth, a toilet, and other features like watertight boxes, these little enclosures lined with stone and dug into the floor. Possibly to hold bait for fishing. And there were these other sort of, like, little stone enclosures built into the floor and niches built into the walls for storage and stuff in all of the homes. But House 7 holds a dark secret. We know that the people of Scarabray were peaceful. We found no real evidence of violence on the site. But House 7 is the only dwelling, the only one, on the site to contain human remains. Here's what Orkney Jar has to say about House 7. Quote, Inside, excavations revealed the bodies of two women in a stone-built grave under the right-hand bed and wall section. So the right-hand bed, is that the man's bed or the woman's bed?
1: Right-hand bed is man.
0: The inhumations in a stone cist decorated with carvings were made prior to the structure being built. This has led to the suggestion that the bodies were involved in some kind of foundation ritual, perhaps hinting that the structures had a special significance. So they were basically human sacrifices?
1: I don't think so. I don't. Maybe I've seen nothing else that suggests that.
0: I'm fascinated by this idea that maybe there's human
1: sacrifice at Scarra Bray. Potentially, I mean. Look, this is the mystery of Scarabray. Every time you think you've cracked it, it's like, was it an IKEA furniture showroom? Was it a sex cult? Did they do human sacrifices? What's going on? What What was stolen from Scarabray in 1913?
0: We don't know. How did they flush the toilets? I'm still wrapped around the axle on that.
1: How did they flush the toilets? Yeah. Again, this is why every time Jenny would ping me and text me and be like, how is this going? I'd be like, I've uncovered another layer of mystery I can't figure out. <laughs> then
0: she'd ask me questions and I'd be like, I don't know. No one knows. <laughs> I know. Anyway, so continuing with the weirdness at House 7.
1: And this is still a quote from Orkney Jar.
0: Quote, The idea that House 7 was not a mere dwelling is strengthened when we consider that its door could only be bolted from the outside. In short, whoever went into House 7 had no physical control over when they got out. Because it was specifically designed to be sealed off from the outside, it has been suggested that House 7 was used to exclude people from the rest of the community. So,
1: the big question is, what purpose did House 7 serve? Was it a prison where people kept there as a punishment or to separate them from the community if they got violent? Or was this perhaps a birthing room for women in childbirth or maybe potentially women during their, their monthly rituals when they got their period? Was it used in death rituals? Was it perhaps a place to lie recently dead people before being buried? Did it have to do with initiation rituals such as marriage or coming of age? Was it used for sex cult nonsense? Was it used for worship? What was it?
0: It's a room with ghosts in it that you lock people in as punishment we're gonna put you in the ghost room if you don't cooperate it's very dark every time i've
1: read about scarbray it's this beautiful peaceful hippie community in the neolithic times no one was fighting with anyone else there's no evidence of warfare and then you get to the bodies and then you get to the man staring at you as you walk through his his domain his sex cult it's weird
0: and then you find out that, you know, your neighbor could lock you in the hallway. And then you find out that it was like eight people to a bed. And then you're like, what the heck is going on in here? Like, what is happening? It's a sex call. That's, that's the only explanation that just covers all of it.
1: So let's get back to these women, these bones, these women we found. In a peaceful community that doesn't have any other human remains found on the site so far, why are their bodies buried under the foundations? Was it some sort of ritual burial? Perhaps. A home these women lived in that was preserved as it was in their lifetime after they were buried here. Maybe it was a tomb. Maybe everyone else who went in there would have been ashes. But that doesn't make sense. We would have found that. Who were these women? Were they ancient healers or wise women? Were they being punished? We will never know the answers to these questions. It's just one of the many mysteries of Scarabray. So, there's also House 8. House 8, like House 7, is very different from the others. It's actually built outside of the midden, made of stone underneath an earthen mound. It's accessible by an open paved area that historians call the marketplace. But we don't know if it was actually a marketplace. If it was a marketplace, it was the IKEA marketplace that they make you walk through after you've done the lap of the labyrinth of all the showrooms and you're like oh god there's more stuff to buy put it away i can't handle it that makes sense house eight is where it's like here's 100 tea lights for two dollars and you're like i guess i need 100 tea lights
0: we're now back to the ikea theory i now believe that house eight has a porched entrance inside there are no sunken storage compartments or built-in beds or furniture there are alcoves and recesses in the walls for storage It's also elaborately carved with Neolithic patterns. Incidentally, by the way, we forgot to mention this, House 7 also has a carved pattern etched into the rim of one of the stones that forms a box bed. It's pretty cool. When House 8 was first excavated in the 1920s, the floor was found to be covered with fragments flaked off from making stone tools. It was interpreted as perhaps a workshop for stone tool making. But it could have been used for other things throughout its lifetime, such as a communal meeting spot, some kind of an Ikea showroom. Some archaeologists believe it was a large room for group orgies. We don't know.
1: No archaeologists believe that. Jenny believes that, and I happen to concur.
0: This is informed (laughs) fan fiction. Some archaeologists (laughs) believe it was a later addition to the site because it resembles later Bronze Age dwellings in the Shetland Islands.
1: That's what the archaeologists believe, (laughs) Let's leave them out of our orgy, which is actually what happened. Like, a hundred years from now, people are going to be like, ancient history family were the only ones that saw this for what it was, a sex cult. So that is what the village of Scarbray looked like. Life was peaceful with people farming, fishing, fucking, and living in a communal compound. 6.25 people to a bed. <laughs> it's not weird. But Scarbray did not exist in a silo. And this is, again, I say this every time, it's one of those things that when they taught history way back when I was in school, they taught us in silo history, but history doesn't exist that way. Scarabray was part of the Neolithic Orkney Complex, a landscape of Neolithic villages, standing stones, and passage graves. The people of Scarbray had neighbors who probably were like, what is going on in that sex cult? And they also had other sites of worship. The people of Scarabray, in addition to being part of their sex cult, were part of the wider community. Like the people of Golbeke Tepe, the people of Skara also had access to a wider temple compound. One of these, the Neolithic Cathedral at Brodgar, would have been where people went to worship. When Jenny and I visited Skara they were actually excavating at Brodgar. So while we were able to visit the incredible standing stones, which are literally in a muddy field that overlooks an incredible loch, you could actually go see the stones and there are these gorgeous big standing stones. It's just stunningly picturesque and everything you want a circle of standing stones to look like. However, we couldn't go see the Neolithic Cathedral because I think they were doing excavations around that area.
0: So yeah, so the Neolithic Cathedral of Brodgar, which is also called the Nessa Brodgar, I'm just going to call it that because it's shorter. It's a massive Neolithic structure located on the Brodgar Peninsula, a tiny, narrow strip of land between the Loch of Stennis and the Lock of Harray. So actually, we were looking at two locks when we were looking at the Ring of Brodgar, which is the associated standing stones.
1: Yeah, I remember the little, like, strip of land in between. It was gorgeous.
0: So there are actually two sets of standing stones really close to the Ness of Brodgar. The standing stones of Stennis are directly southeast, and the Ring of Brodgar, which is what we're talking about, is to the northwest. Other Neolithic sites and standing stones and circles are nearby. There's a ton of sites. Skara Brae is just six miles away. The Ness of Brodgar is a massive Neolithic structure made up of a number of stone structures. Like, it's, it's a complex made up of a number of stone structures. Perhaps the most impressive was Structure 10. And this is what nesofbroadgar.co.uk, the official site of research at Broadgar, tells us. Quote, Structure 10, it was hailed as one of the largest, if not the largest, stone built Neolithic non funerary structures in Britain. This was no exaggeration. Measuring over 20 meters by 19 meters externally, which is like, what, 60 feet by almost 60 feet? Structure 10 had walls over four meters thick, which is um, four times three is 12 feet thick, and a single entrance leading to a partially paved forecourt area flanked by a pair of substantial standing stones. A meter wide paved and revetted passageway ran around its exterior. Unquote.
1: This was a massive building. It was where feasts were held. There are remains of deer bones, cattle, and other animals found at this site. This was where everyone came to celebrate. People from across Neolithic Orkney would hold feasts. We think this would have been around things like the solstice or other astronomical events that we have seen correlated with the construction and layout of things like the Ring of Brodgar, the Standing Stones at Stennis, and the Burial Mound at Maeshow. And Maeshow is another place that I think we will do an episode on at some point in time. It is incredible. So the Ring of Brodgar, a standing stone circle also nearby, was another important feature in the Neolithic religious landscape of the Orkneys. The Orkney jar says, quote, the sheer size of the Brodgar Ring prompted the theory that it was designed to house the local population attending ceremonies or events.
0: And just to be clear, that is the, um, the standing stone circle that Jen and I went to that overlooks the lake and is very beautiful.
1: Mm-hmm. According to Aubrey Burrell, the Ring of Brodgar could have held 3,000 people. He went on to suggest that the Brodgar Ring was erected because the standing stones of Stennis grew too small to contain the increasing number of participants. We shall never know the real purpose of this enigmatic stone circle and its use, like our modern-day churches and temples, was probably very complex. Human burials, festivals of thanks, animal sacrifice, marriage, meeting areas, or pathways to the gods. All of these are possibilities. The only thing that is certain is that the ring of Brodgar has captured the imagination of people for millennia and looks set to continue doing so for some time to come. Unquote.
0: What exactly went on at the Ring of Brodgar or the Ness of Brodgar? We will never know.
1: <laughs> it's orgies.
0: It's Obviously, it's orgies. <laughs> Shut that book. We're
1: done. No, we'll never know. But probably orgies. What else are people doing?
0: What else is there to do up there? It gets dark at 3 p.m. <laughs> <laughs> but we do know that this was a place where people came to worship en masse. No doubt the people of Skara and their neighbors from all over the island gathered here. When the, the people of Scar Bray showed up, everybody else was like, oh, God, those weirdos again. <laughs> <laughs> Here come those weirdos. They're in a sex cult.
1: <laughs> Look, we're also in a sex cult. Just one that has like houses that don't interconnect and you have to knock at the door first and no one's sitting by the fire glaring at you while the orgy is happening around them.
0: <laughs> it's just a sex cult with a modicum of privacy. That's all. Maynads
1: and Dionysus would be proud.
0: So we've seen evidence of massive, massive feasts with as, <laughs> with as many as 400 cattle being slaughtered to feed the population for feasting and celebrating and orgies. In short, ceremonial life in the Orkneys was a thing. They were peaceful gatherings. We don't see too much evidence of widespread violence at these sites. These were peaceful, free-love-orgy communes, okay? So, what
1: happened to the people of Scarabray? All of this sounds kind of idyllic, right? A perfectly peaceful life in Neolithic Scotland. Everyone getting along, everyone feasting. 6.25 people to a bed. (laughs) (laughs) 6.25. Everyone enjoying their best Neolithic lives, right? But if that's the case, then why did Scarbray wind up buried and lost to the world for 40 centuries? There are many theories, but they kind of break down into two camps. One has been debunked, and to be fair, this is a very old theory that was from the original excavations in the 1920s. So they weren't working with a lot of the evidence we have now. They didn't know things like climate change and stuff, but I like this theory, so I'm going to share it first. This is the first theory, and it is that a harsh storm or other weather event came upon Scarbray very quickly. It forced the people to flee and abandon the site or risk being buried in it. The evidence we have for this is that there were scattered beads found on the floor in one of the houses, as if they came off of a necklace while someone was running away. Of course, this theory makes sense when you think about... The fact that at one point Scarbray was literally buried in sand could a storm have come up so violently that it buried the village in minutes? It's not likely. Also, if that happened, wouldn't we have found more bodies in and around the site? The lack of bodies, and considering how well things were preserved in that sand, means that this theory just it can't hold water.
0: The other theory has to do with the change in how people lived around the twenty two hundreds BC. 800 years or so into Scarabray's history? I would say, like, the 2500s to the 2200s. Is that accurate? Like, the dates are fuzzy. The climate got colder. We start to see more single-family homesteads in the archaeological record. There was less of a need to live in a communal environment. I don't know why getting colder would mean you need the communal environment less, because Scarabray was specifically designed to be a cold-weather inhabitation area.
1: Yeah, I think maybe it was more about having potentially... The space for your family. Like I think maybe people had more children or they lived longer. I don't know exactly why we see more single family homesteads. And by single family, we might mean a multi-generational family.
0: Yeah, the moving into single family homesteads may not have been linked to the climate. We can conjecture how this happened in a lot of ways and archaeologists just don't know a lot. Maybe, despite the cold, the younger generation at Scarabray were itching for a new way of life, one with more privacy. Maybe they were just sick of having to walk through everybody's house to get to their house. Maybe, like at Cahokia, the great feasts and collective events at places like the Ness of Brodgar ushered in a new society, one where people were less tied to horizontal kin groups and more tied to a larger, more complex, and stratified society. We don't know.
1: Maybe, if it was colder, they needed these larger single-family dwellings to keep their livestock inside to keep them alive. We don't know where these livestock were. The Scarborough houses certainly couldn't house them, and we don't see evidence of them living with the people.
0: What we think happened is this. Younger generations started to move away from Scarabray. They started living in their own homes with their own families. And this wasn't just a transition in how people lived.
1: We know this because we don't see evidence of children in the homes at Scarabray. We don't see any cots or cradles or things that we would think of as children's toys, right? So we're not seeing evidence that children are in this community. Again, could those things have been made of some sort of degradable thing that disappeared? Sure it's unlikely that across all of all the site that would have been the case. So what archaeologists think is that younger people, people potentially, who are having children moved away from this area.
0: So the, older, the younger people moved away, but the older people stayed. Is that the theory?
1: That is the theory. Again, I would caution to say older in quotation marks. I don't think anyone's living until they're like, 70s here at this community, but who knows?
0: Well, you know, some people can be really long-lived in ancient communities, so possible. Yeah, it's true. Possible. But anyway, this wasn't just happening at Scarabray. At some point during this transition, people even started abandoning the other great religious monuments at Orkney.
1: During this time, around 2400 BC, the Great Neolithic Cathedral at Brodgar had its last epic feast. This is the description of that last feast at Brodgar from the Ness of Brodgar website. Quote, it had perhaps slipped into the realm of myth or folklore, and by 2400 BC, it is unlikely anyone had witnessed its final days, let alone its former glory. But people came back. We know this because animal bone was deposited in the passageway that still enclosed the building's remains the bone was placed in layers, with each layer covered by rubble and soil. The final, and therefore uppermost, layer consisted of a huge deposit in which bone, primarily cattle tibiae, was carefully and deliberately arranged around Structure 10. Such was the quantity of bone found that we estimate the final deposit represents at least 400 cattle, all of which, radiocarbon dating suggests, were slaughtered at about the same time, around 2400 BC. These deposition episodes perhaps relate to a radically changing world, coinciding with the appearance of beaker culture in Britain and its package of new pottery styles and the use of bronze. Essentially, the Bronze Age. Continuing the quote, the number of cattle represented and the fact that the tibiae have been broken to extract the marrow leads us to believe the bone deposit represents a huge communal feasting event. The quantity of meat produced by four hundred cattle, however, suggests this event was more than a simple gathering. Were they commemorating the end of the nest or celebrating the start of something new?
0: After this, the nest of Brodgar was abandoned and buried. Just like Gobleke Tepe, the people moved on. And something similar happened to Skara Bray. Around the 2200s BC, as we said, the climate changed. The weather was colder. It's possible more people migrated to mainland Scotland or Ireland or Norway. It's possible they moved into single-family homesteads where they could take their animals inside and maybe not be in a sex cult anymore, or maybe just be in a sex cult with some modicum of privacy. I don't know.
1: Yeah, maybe being in a sex cult that didn't involve mom and dad. Fair enough, right? It's a bad sex cult if you're having sex in front of
0: your mom and dad. We all agree with that.
1: Maybe not be the communal porn hub where everyone walked through as they were doing their thing.
0: Exactly. 6.25 to a bed. Maybe they just wanted two to three to four in a bed.
1: Maybe they're like a four-way is really all I can handle.
0: Anyway, we're not sure where the people went, but many of them left this area and they didn't return to celebrate at the sacred places. They didn't come back for feasts or holidays. They moved on. And their gods and their traditions went into the ground. But some life
1: clung on. The archaeology shows that the abandonment at Scarabre didn't happen all at once. One theory suggests that younger generations continued to move out in small numbers until towards the end of its life, it is believed that Scarabre remained a small community of older people who still clung to the old ways of life. They lived by the sea, they tilled the fields. They lived in their homes of stone and seaweed, and they watched the North Atlantic rage in the winter and surge in the summer. They remained trapped in a way of life that had been abandoned by the young. They continued to keep a culture alive that had been lost. They were the final, apocryphal lighthouse keepers of Scarabray. Until their own lights went out and the site was forgotten, the roofs eroded, the sand crept in, taking over the stones and houses, Locking everything perfectly in place, frozen. The Atlantic claimed the cliffs, the lock dried up, and finally, Scarbray became a mound, a hill that guided fishermen to good catches. It became a lost memory, frozen in the earth, waiting for a storm to bring it back to the
0: light. So that's it for this week. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it happens every single time (laughs) we're just like that's it for this week (laughs) every time we stab you in the heart and say so that's it for this
1: week hope you're not crying at your office desk while contemplating, you know, the futileness of our short lives that will be forgotten and buried in the sands of the uh, North Atlantic.
0: <laughs> we're here to help you, help you manage your depression over an ancient history fan girl, So make sure you come and say hello to us on
1: social media. We're on Twitter at ancienthistfan. Uh, for a while we stay on Twitter, given the Twitter changes.
0: For now, we're on Twitter at ancienthistfan. I don't know how long that's going to last. We're on instagram please help us build our
1: instagram people we need to build it and we're on facebook not a lot but mostly instagram we're at ancient history fangirl we're also on tiktok although i am still figuring it out um so bear with me but come and follow us we have not posted anything at tiktok yeah i know but who knows maybe by the time this drops we will we are at ancient history fangirl come and follow us so that i have encouragement to post videos where I don't talk about sex cults. Or maybe I do.
0: This is, this is great. This is fine.
1: And we're also on Patreon. Like, if you want to help support the podcast, please go on over to Patreon. where patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl. You get bonus episodes. A lot of times you get us drunkenly talking to relatively famous people who are definitely more famous than us. Telling us mythology and history and all kinds of good stuff, you get extra episodes where we let our hair down, and Jenny very lightly edits them, and potentially I say really naughty things <laughs> not like this episode <laughs> at all <laughs> or, or, or literally the episode before where I talked about straddling a megapine anyway. <laughs> Oh my god, why do I drink? anyway? stop, won't stop. That is what you get on the Patreon. We also review movies like The Lost City with Sandra Bullock. In addition, we also have a book coming out. It's called Women of Myth. It's available now for pre-order. It is beautifully illustrated by Sarah Richard. It is us talking about women of world mythology. It is a real project of our heart. So, Jenny, we have some patrons to thank this week.
0: We sure do. Apologies in advance to anyone whose name we mispronounce. And thank you so much to Jamie Pentekoff.
1: Thank you to Captain Tom Williamson. That's Jenny's dad. Kaylee Shunk. Jonathan, just Jonathan.
0: Georgia M.
1: And Howard S.
0: Thank you so much for your support. You're the reason that we keep this podcast going. And thank you all for listening. And we will see you next week. <laughs>